0: Hello and welcome to Wild Hearts, the podcast dedicated to sharing the stories and lessons from the founders and operators changing the world. Today's episode is special. It marks a new era for Wild Hearts and will be shining a light on world-class operators. The pressures on the VC funded companies to have effective unit economics that
1: could reach profitability one day, that is a net good thing for society. These companies having to build a more fortress balance sheet and a more robust business model is going to be a build like a stronger foundation for the Sydney startup ecosystem and the world ecosystem generally. But yeah, it's gonna be a very painful transition. That's
0: Joe Harris, the chief commercial officer at Eucalyptus, and this is Wild Hearts. Today's episode will be all about growth from a company synonymous with it, Eucalyptus. A healthcare technology business building digital experiences for patients. Joe Harris is currently the chief commercial officer at U, but he started as the first growth hire only a year after the business was founded. We cover everything from the purpose of a growth function to capital allocation decisions, to funnel dynamics, to misalignment and team design, and how that manifests into frustration, and so much more. We had so much fun recording this episode. Here is the conversation. <laughs> I'm super pumped for today because you are innovating at the front line like the founders we interview because you're the first operator to ever join me on Wild Hearts. And that means it's super exciting. And I was sort of prepping is like, where could this conversation go? You've seen the the list and it's full of directions. So this will be as discussed, a bit of a dance Just sort of kick off the conversation. Let's keep it high level and start off with just some definitions. So, what is the purpose of a growth function in a business? Growth function in a business. Like, are we aligned on what things <laughs> Fundamental. Like, promises. oh, damn. Like, yeah, let's, like, let's agree there first. Yeah, I think well, it's, a, it's a great place to start. So,
1: first, I think you've got to agree on what a business is. And a business's main function being to allocate capital to create the greatest return for that capital over time. And so, there's money in, money out. And the relationship between those two things is the health of that business, time being a really important factor of that. And so when I think about a growth team's function, it's going to be different business to business because the way that each business turns that money in into money out will be different. And so a growth team's function within that business is to sort of be the shadow of the business model and work across each of those levers to make that ratio of money out over money in as strong and as good as it could be. um, Because that ratio is going to be Like the investability and over time the profitability, which is going to then allow you to reinvest and grow the business. And so, at different chapters of the business, it will have a different like function. But yeah, for the
0: most part, that's how I would like sum it up. Is like that's their core mandate is increase that ratio. I love that the shadow of the business. And so, I guess the next question is, what does that shadow look like inside of you? Yeah, well, I think you know anyone looking from the outside in is going to have a decent
1: idea from uh, the fact that you know we're a very prolific marketer marketing company, I think a lot of companies, you can look just to the CEO, to the founding group, and you can extrapolate a lot about their go to market and how they think about operating the business. And so Tim's obviously come from huge successes at Koala, been a very prolific paid marketer, in his career, very, very well known for that. And so that has translated. It's, you know, at the beginning, he's driving that, then he hires the right people around him and has them drive it and scales that up and up. But it continues to be kind of built upon and compounded on as a key driver. So that is, I'd say, one of our advantages, but actually the reason I was brought in was try to establish another lever, which is around like driving product changes to improve the cost of acquisition or the lifetime value um, in a very measured and experimented way so that you have clarity as you move forward, similar to how you would split test and iterate on an ad set within a Facebook campaign. You might do the same thing within your product development cycle. And that was like the original mandate to come in. And so that was like the two sort of halves of it. But we also now have um, a pretty successful, I would say, organic strategy. PR is becoming a much more meaningful part of the business. And on the LTV side, we've now restructured and put together this offerings team, which is the other half of my role, which is a lot more around how do you really hone in and actually our product process has actually just become part of that mandate versus before where I was doing my like thing I came in to do growth engineering as we were calling it like that was a specific niche that has expanded to sort of consume or subsume how we think
0: about product generally. Yeah. So the the initial mandate was very different to what uh Eucalyptus has become famous for, which is marketing. And your job was sort of driving down CAC and increasing LTV. Maybe touch on I guess your experience with perhaps a new brand or how you thought about pushing those levers in the direction that you wanted them to go? Well, I mean, the, the first place to start, I think is, is to give deference
1: to the, the other people around me that work with me through each of these launches. Like I'm absolutely, this is like, I was not around for the launch of pilot, you know, were, like Kin was, was a huge success before me, before I joined the company. And, um, I think one of my core focuses when I first started with software and that's like the example I, I would probably work on. So when we first launched software, It was the most, I guess, complex personalization journey that we had at the business at the time, because it's an individually compounded treatment per patient. That is a a much harder proposition to have people understand, especially coming from a cold start of never even having heard of it before. No brand equity, no reviews, no nothing. And so it was the first time we had applied this kind of measured, split-tested approach to product development. And so I went through sort of, we went from the top of the funnel all the way through the onboarding experience, the onboarding process, iterating on each stage as we went. And so like an example that we came up with uh, that was like a key experiment was you get really deep and you do some interviews with your patients or your customers and you understand what their hesitations, their objections, their fears are going through that funnel. So you have to make sure you talk to the right people. You don't talk to existing customers to ask them like why they didn't purchase, right? That doesn't make any sense. You have to talk to the people that abandoned, so you need a way to contact them. Um, And then you speak to them and we find out, you know, they are often out and about while using our platform. That makes sense. So us asking them for photos of their face while they're doing the quiz is actually a huge turn point. And we looked at Hotjar, we could see in the funnel that like 50% of the funnel was bouncing at that stage. Like, why? It's like, it's optional. You actually don't have to submit it. You can just skip it. Mm -hmm. Turned out the UX of skipping was not clear. Generally, asking for photos at that time was quite premature. We didn't actually need it at that time. And so one of the first things I did was we removed that and I built like a photo upload for inside of our consultation with the doctor. And in that context, when you imagine, OK, they've done the pre-quiz questionnaire, the doctor has reviewed the information, they've requested photos from the patient. The patient has now like taken some time and maybe isn't on the bus or isn't in the office and can now actually find the time to take those photos. And in their perception, they're now understanding that they are sending that directly to the doctor. It was always the case, yeah. But now, by jigging the experience backwards that way, we've able to have the right context to ask for the right information. And now, yeah, our completion rate of the quiz doubled. Then, like the quality and the depth of that consultation experience, the perception for the patient, that extra friction of having mm-hmm. to send photos to your doctor was actually a very positive thing because it helped them understand the level of detail that we were going to. And like, mind you, we were always doing it. So the perception was actually the difference here.
0: Mm. How did you know that those changes were successful? What sort of metrics were guiding that decision when you were an individual contributor?
1: Attribution is one of the gnarliest beasts, I think, of any business. And I'm sure, like anyone listening to this, that runs a, a business, like trying to figure out when you make a change, does it actually do what you thought it did? With attribution, the, there's two extremes. One is full send. You never attribute anything. You just do a lot of things really fast, and you just you trust your gut. I think a lot of like early stages of businesses, that's probably the way to go, honestly, because you don't have many customers. You don't have much volume coming through. So running a split test is statistically not viable. You're going to end up waiting for three months to get a result, which is just not worth the conviction. So you have to trust your gut. Um, you've got your customers there. You have a close feedback loop with them. That's way better. When I think about setting out metrics to do a split test, honestly, it can be done on any metric because a split test is a mechanism to test a change in a metric. So in these examples, we would be looking at basic completion rates of things. So conversion rates at different steps. So we have terminology for each stage. And so it would be like, what is the conversion between landing and consult start? Consult start to consult paid. What is the consult completion rate? What is the order paid rate? Uh, And looking at each of these metrics, we're able to have a north star for each stage of the experience. And you can also zoom in and out as needed. So you can do, like I mentioned, landing to consult start. You could also do landing to consult paid. And so you would encapsulate two stages of the experience and you obviously you want to have two things that you look at when you do the test. You want to look at the specific metric you're trying to move, but because no experience is a closed system, like they all interact with each other. um, You need to then zoom out and look at the whole experience and what is the net impact of that change, because it could cannibalize conversion from somewhere else, like maybe we move that friction around and suddenly that stage gets really good, but the next stage becomes really bad. And so the net effect is actually worse. Mm. um and so having that guardrail is how you stop teams from over optimizing on their like local maximum yeah and hurting you as a business overall because if you have every team trying to do that they're going to be trying to push the hard challenges around to each other rather than trying to solve it
0: themselves okay this leads into a a really interesting area because like you've been promoted like 20 times (laughs) your role now is chief commercial officer did you know about that net impact as an individual contributor or have you sort of grown in awareness as you've been promoted many times over really interesting
1: question that i think the answer is i did not have that awareness at the beginning i think it was learned we were moving at pace and i had a lot of wins at the beginning that now with the context and, and the knowledge that i i have now you know you could call it wisdom i would look back at it and know that i was over optimizing a single part of the experience and that when you look when you zoomed out probably wasn't a net improvement we were too myopic we were really zoomed in Team was very small and we were just going really fast at pace. We learned that quite quickly that when you like move friction up and down the funnel, that your downstream metrics might become better or worse, but it usually was mirrored by the upstream metrics. And so just moving friction around was a lazy solution and wasn't actually going to have the impact. So I think as I especially as I moved from IC to my first like management role, that was when I think I became really acutely aware of it. Um, because I was spending as much time on the design of what we do and the measurement of how it impacted as actually doing the thing. I was still straddling doing both, but that extra that extra context and time and then measuring other people's work as well, you start to become a lot more, I guess, intellectually honest uh, around the impacts of things as well um, and, and much more sort of acutely aware um, of the net impact um, mm-hmm. when you're accountable for the net impact performance of the funnel.
0: Hmm. How do you think about collaboration and how do you think about collaboration done well and done poorly in that sort of context of net impact and moving at speed? I'd love to get your thoughts there. It's a really deep question with lots of different facets, I think, because you could have collaboration
1: at the individual level. You could have collaboration at the teams within an org level, which are all anchored around the same OKRs of the same function. And then you can have like collaboration of orgs with each other or different teams within two orgs trying to collaborate with each other. And each of these engagement models at different levels of abstraction,
0: it's going to be different. Maybe touch on like the organization design and how that's evolved, especially in the last year. I think that might be helpful context for the folks listening. Sure.
1: The first most actionable thing that I've seen proven right over and over again. I and mean, every time I found something that didn't work, typically it was violating this rule. So that the rule is whenever you're designing an, organize, an org or a team, you need to align the agency and the accountability of that team. So the team needs to be accountable for the work that they do, but they must have agency over the thing they're accountable for. So what the violation of that looks like is a team who's accountable for the conversion rate of like this part of the experience, but they actually can't push code or change the service or change anything about it. They have to now go and negotiate with a bunch of other teams to try to get them to do it. And that will slow things down precipitously. To the point where you may actually hit like a deadlock if it's a really terrible violation. And the reverse of that as well is someone who doesn't have accountability, but they have full agency over the thing, you will end up with something really divergent from what you would have hoped. Mm. And so both are painful like for the company, but also for the individuals involved, right? Because they're like either sitting in these meetings being like, I don't care about this, or they're sitting in this meeting being like, I care deeply about this and I'm unable to change it. And that's when you get unease and instability and angst within the organization, when you have many teams like this. And typically as a leader, you're going to feel the amplification of that pain. So like when we hit a period where we had to make one of the biggest trade-offs, I think I've had to make, which was when we redesigned our growth team, Uh, we went from functional-based teams to brand-based teams. And the original founding of the business is based on the inside of a house of brands, shared and, and leveraged infrastructure. And generating operating leverage off of a fixed cost base—that's the core tenet. So this would seem to be directly contravening that, uh, to be as far opposite as you could be, which was we're going to make each of these teams specific to one of the brands. And so you have like if X is the cost of the team, you now have X cost per brand rather than one X divided by like five or six or N brands. Yeah. And so you have this like variably scaling cost now as the business scales. It was a tough trade-off to have to to try to make in that scenario, and it comes back to this collaboration question again. But before that. We had one team that was accountable for the say performance marketing or the landing pages or the brand marketing. Like those are the different kinds of teams. You have different teams accountable for their stage of that experience, but they didn't have agency over the whole experience. So they're all talking about the same metrics because it's like, you know, brand and performance like are operating at a similar level. Landing pages come only just slightly after, but they interact directly with the performance of each. And so when you're zoomed in, and like we were saying at the beginning, like you zoomed in so far into one metric, like landing to consult start, but then you know the the quality of the traffic that comes from the performance campaign, like that actually makes a huge difference on the performance of that landing page. If the teams are separate and don't have agency over the whole funnel, but are both accountable for that stage of the funnel, then you're going to have a lot of conflict. And yeah. so we were like, we need to mix the accountabilities of these teams to unify one team under one leader who is accountable for that stage of the funnel um, and it has agency over each part of that experience so that they can all be aligned, work together, because the core insight that led to we have to do this is you much more often need to coordinate a above the line brand campaign with a Facebook performance with YouTube with a landing page than you need to coordinate landing pages across all the brands. Mm-hmm. Like That is so much more core to the value that you're providing your customers. And the thing you lose is the learning leverage, the process leverage of having all the performance marketers work together every day. Mm. Like there's the context switching, that part of it was never really, I think that beneficial for for a team like that is like quite distracting. It's fulfilling and interesting. And like that's something we've had to try to work on. It's like making sure that when you work purely on one brand, you've this house of brands that we continue to have exposure and learnings from the other brands. And we've done that via like process and team rituals and having a guild system. So like a matrix model where you have crafts where they, they manage people on a craft capacity and they help make sure that they're developing and learning from what's working elsewhere in the business. So we solve for the leverage and we get the benefits of the focus.
0: And maybe share an example of what that might look like in a campaign, for example, like this person being responsible for this metric and like how has that change unlocked the speed at which yuka is moving at the scale it's at? yeah i think a really great example like we'll do a
1: before and after and i think like enough times past that we've all got some emotional distance from this this was quite a trying time sort of the first half of last year we were ready for the next act of pilot right like pilot was our biggest brand it was doing pretty well up until that stage i mean relative to the market was doing very well i think we just have a very high bar for ourselves and then we kind of needed it to step up and have have something to stand for right like it had earned the right to invoke the, the quote from the great Tim himself, um, <laughs> it had earned the right to have a stance and to, to have a second act um, and to stand for something that people cared about and to have a brand people could align with. And we were attempting to take a big swing at that. Now, that requires a lot of integration across the entire funnel of the experience of the brand. Uh, like everything from the visual design, through the copywriting, through the whole experience, through the types of um, out of home campaigns, TV campaigns you do. And so we were coordinating a complete rebrand of the website a um, update of the design system through the like engineered experience so engineering need to be, be involved product need to be involved we were going to like rewrite the tone of voice to make it more uh like medical respectable authoritative and less like your mate down the pub so there was like this whole kind of raising the bar this like rebrand and it was a like three to six month process where they were all dependent on each other and so you have like oh this team's like oh they're delayed so it's actually going to push back this other thing but we have a deadline with the like TV network, we've got this media, we've got this media buy locked in, and that needs to go out. But like, there's all these dependencies and different teams, different team leads accountable for each, trying to coordinate with each other, but having disagreements. And so, if you contrast that, like that was a like a, a scenario where we ended up spending a lot of money with pretty negligible results. We're very proud of the rebranding work we did do, and that has continued to be the platform we've built off of. But the concerted effort of the campaign itself that was supposed to coincide with that rebrand. Did not have the result we wanted. Was very expensive and resulted in our like efficiency blowing out for months on end, right? Because right. for anyone who hasn't run a brand campaign, they're quite expensive, um, and you end up amortizing it across many months of your like marketing spend budget. And so, if you then, for example, walk into a recession and you need to cut your marketing spends budget, you actually have this fixed amortization that you're needing to account for. That's constraining the amount that you can spend. So, if, like you have 500k every month coming into your amortization. Then you and your total budget six fifty. Well, you only have one hundred fifty k of performance spend now, when you would have had six fifty before. And that was exactly the scenario pilot was in. So like that whole scenario was, was like it started from the misalignment, and it, that's where it ends up, right? And like that can be be quite catastrophic if you're unable to adapt. Thankfully, we are. I, I would say very adaptable, and we're able to move quite quickly to 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 change these things. We saw this happening, and that was the thing where I was like, okay, we need to restructure. So I went through that process, brand aligned teams. And so we had to be making the bet. This was like the first principles thing was you had to make the bet that the focus gains you would get would be greater than the loss of the leverage across the function, such that usually when you have a fixed resource, um, like a fixed team with five people in it, it's going to be resource constrained. And that lack of resources makes the team need to be really judicious with what it prioritizes. And so you only get great work out is the idea right? They only do the things that are the most impactful as long as you have great prioritization frameworks and Mm. great people making good decisions in in the team. And all of those things are all aligned and working. And so if you then expand, like, or you dedicate like a team to a specific problem set, they're going to only prioritize within that problem set. And Mm. so if you've got this set of five different sets of problems, and now you're usually mushing them all together and only picking the top 10 out of all of it. Whereas now you're picking the top 10 out of every single brand, every single specific problem set. And so the idea is like, well, if you would never have prioritized those things, if you were to only pick 10 out of the whole thing, should you do it when you pick 10 out of each? That What is the net impact of doing that? And the idea is, okay, well, if the team is focused, they have compounding context, they're able to move faster and produce better quality work for the brand, that like the incremental quality of delivery of each of those, say, top two or three items that would have been prioritized normally increases 50 100%. And then the long tail of things that they then get through because of the increased speed, the, ad, the sum of all of those things is like gravy, right? That's the idea. But there has to, the long tail has to account for the fact that now you need to have a team for every single brand. And so the cost goes from X for one team to 5X for five teams. And so that was quite the gamble. Um, and it wasn't necessarily a one-way door, but it's like team restructures of that scale. is not something that you can do frequently because it incurs a large cost on the team. And I'm super grateful for how adaptable the people have been in the team how they've stepped up to the challenge, how all of these people that have now stepped into leadership roles because of the structure. To take a very quick aside, if you look at LVMH and, and the House of Brands business model generally, one of its core advantages is its ability to attract and retain the top talent. Because if you're like the second in command and you want to be the lead designer of a, a name luxury brand, often you'll have to leave to go somewhere else because you it's like a family lineage thing to wait for them to retire or die. In a House of Brands, you can move diagonally to another brand and get that career exposure. So we have like four creative leads, right? Whereas they would normally only have one, and so we're able to get and keep better, like the best talent because of that. And so by moving to this model, we're now able to capture that benefit and create more opportunity. So our best people don't leave us. So that's been a huge, a huge one on that front. And we've just run one of the greatest integrated campaigns I think we ever have. It was the What's Your Why campaign for Juniper, and it was it was launched alongside a lot of the rest of the industry talking about the new year, new me rhetoric um, Uh of like hey you know it's it's time for you to reinvent yourself what we were saying is actually you're always you you're not there's no new you and old you it's about understanding why you want to do this like is it about um living longer is it about being in a healthier place for your kids or your grandkids is it about feeling confident fitting into the clothes that you used to fit into like what is it that is driving you to want to uh, achieve this change and not reframing it as like an old bad you and a good new you and just thinking like we're with every version of you and it's about what's your why and we'll be there to support you on that journey and like i almost get i get pretty emotional thinking about it because it is such like a profound and impactful campaign that has been hugely successful in in raising sort of the awareness of of the problem as a medical problem like obesity being a chronic medical problem a disease that we we are helping to to manage with them as well as kind of creating a safer space for the people suffering from it to to come to us and, and receive the treatment that we can provide and that was only possible because of the great work of, of the team, the team structure that allowed them to have ownership over the out-of-home, the creative, the
0: performance assets, and the landing pages. So many roads to travel there. One is, you mentioned prioritization frameworks. What's a, a recent example where it was sort of tough to figure out how, how do we prioritize and how did you sort of steer the growth team in the right direction? It's tough to come up with recent examples because
1: my growth leads have become so good that they very, they usually take care of it on their own now, which has been awesome.
0: Okay, um, then how, how did you make them so good? <laughs> like, how did you, uh, to bring it back to your principle of accountability and agency, how did you unlock that for them? And if it's easier, perhaps, like, tailor it back to you, like, what did greatness look like as a growth lead when you were performing at your best? Well, I think when it comes to
1: leadership, there's sort of, I guess, four main areas that i think about of of greatness like the responsibilities of that person as as a leader of the team i think like it comes down to processing noise into signal so bringing clarity is super super important especially in a house of brands uh, especially even though with the amount of things that go on at eucalyptus on any given day uh, you need to have clarity from your team leader what is a priority and more importantly like what is not a priority Um, and what are not going to do this sprint Uh, because you're going to get inbound requests from other teams you're going to have these great ideas yourself and you need to know like we've got very fixed amount of time and resources like how do we deploy that within a sprint so clarity encoding i think how people are able to process that noise into signal themselves so i think of that as process right so rituals that you have the templates you have the processes you have those all exist to help people self-serve processing noise into signal and that might be like a prioritization framework you have like people use rice people use all sorts of different ways of measuring what they, It typically all boils down to how confident am I in how big this impact is going to be and how much is it going to cost us to do it. It's an ROI calculation with more steps, right? Uh, with like an expected value multiple on top of it, I guess. But yeah, like having a process there that other people can deploy. So it's not always coming back to you as the leader. I think that's the best way that you can scale this up is like you should not have to be the decision maker. You should deploy the structure that allows people within your team to make their own high quality decisions. And that is your core responsibility as a leader to build that process and that brings that clarity. Then after that, it's about coaching that next generation of leaders within your team. So if you kind of bring it up through abstractions, it's like, okay, we've got to bring clarity. Then you have to build a process that derives clarity. Then you need to train people to build processes that derive clarity. Mm -hmm. So that then you have that next layer of abstraction. You can now deploy someone who you can really trust to take a team and bring it to somewhere where it has high quality outcomes. They make high quality prioritization decisions every time. And you actually have not had to be that involved and then the last thing which i think is actually the most important is like the broadening of the mind or the breaking of barriers And like that is the the final kind of frontier for a leader is when you go back to someone who has been leading this process of building this system and maybe they have added a self-imposed limitation maybe they think their budget is fixed maybe they think that like time is is like a fixed asset that they, they can't extend or, or constrain and often it, it just takes one conversation for them to sort of expose. You just ask probing questions like, what is the blocker? What is the origination of that blocker? What, what would be some things that you, w- you would want to try to do? if You had unlimited budget, or you had unlimited this or that. And just like playing with the constraints to understand the shape of the problem, because often you can just say, oh, well, we can actually hire a contractor to help you out with that. If that unlocks this capacity to go and do this other thing. Um, and actually the cost trade off of that is really, really worth it because the contractor like over the lifetime of the project will cost $5,000 and the project alone will deliver like the amount of marketing spend we spend like a hundred thousand dollars hundred fifty thousand dollars of impact if you improve the conversion rate by two percent so it's usually easy at that when you when you zoom it out and that is what the the benefit of having different levels of context or different layers of leadership is like the person with the broader context can help scope out or like zoom out the solution from the lead or from the person who who is struggling within those constraints so if i sum it up it's bring clarity derive the process uh, coach the next generation of process builders or leaders, and then breaking the barriers and and helping people expand their their solution. The
0: final one is just so fascinating. Let's just run through a thought experiment. So let's say, for example, I'm a people pleaser. How might you see that negatively impact my performance as a growth lead? Yeah. I mean, this
1: is super applicable, I think, beyond growth lead, beyond like it's it's any any role (laughs) realistically it's essentially just like how you hold yourself within an organization at all and how that leads into your your success or or limitation within a company i think when it comes to people pleasing and you know coming as a i guess originally a self-proclaimed people pleaser i think there is always a part of me that will will hold on to that i've definitely learned to be a bit more disagreeable since in like a productive way i think like that we'll get we'll get to that but the second order impacts of people pleasing is what is really important i think um, especially over a long time The problem is when you tell people what they want to hear and it differs from the truth, you're obscuring the ability to turn noise into signal. And you're introducing more noise into the system because you're telling someone an untruth, right? You're telling someone something that is just not real, right? And so the leader now is operating blind. And so like real examples could be, okay, if you're a leader and you're a people pleaser and you want to tell your your manager that everything's good, everything's Gucci, you're winning, like no worries. And the metrics say something very different, that's going to cause a lot of confusion and frustration for leadership because they're like, well, something's clearly wrong. I want to help, but I'm being told that everything's right. And there's obviously something not right. So you need to be able to uh, reconcile that. And so speaking the truth, which may actually be quote unquote bad news. Like I've often told people that good news is just bad news early enough to do something about it. Because if you tell me that, oh, we don't have enough people to pull off this goal that we've set by the end of the quarter, We now have time to try to get contractors or hire or pull in someone from another team temporarily there are options and you close off all the doors to solutions when you keep that to yourself and just say oh everything's fine we're definitely gonna hit that okr and i respect that leader i trust that leader tenfold on the one who who hides problems from me right because now i know if i send you in a certain direction and a problem gets to a place where you can't solve it with the constraints you have you will bring it to me and we'll solve it together and that way over time the net problems that hit us in the face like a torpedo right go down massively and so those are the the type of leaders you want to surround yourself with the ones you can trust to escalate to you when things are wrong it is not a failure to escalate when you shouldn't have it is a failure to not have escalated when you needed to
0: how do you celebrate the right behaviors and maybe like another way to frame that is like talk about your journey of breaking through some of the limitations you might have imposed on yourself on that journey of being an individual contributor to a manager to now the chief commercial officer
1: i mean when i first joined i would never have dreamed that this was going to be my career path through eucalyptus like if you had if you had said i will give you a million dollars if you can get within like 20 percent of the correct answer of what's going to happen to you over the next three years i somehow would owe you money somehow out of the back of that um <laughs> it's been very unpredictable and i think part of it has been i've never optimized for more than like the next couple of quarters, you know, like I've been looking ahead at what are the next major problems that we need to solve as a business and pushing myself to to try to solve them. And they've scaled. And I think as you solve problems and you, you demonstrate that you're not people pleasing to a degree where you're, you're limiting the team or limiting yourself, you will be given more challenges, bigger challenges, scarier challenges. And learning to run towards that discomfort is where, how you grow. Like it's your body telling you, hey, you need help and you're weak in this area. This is where you need to improve. That's the fear that you feel when you get told you're going to start an SEO process from scratch, or you need to like improve our landing page process, or you need to restructure a 50 person team. There will be people around you at every stage of that journey who have more knowledge than you in that area, or you can find people that do that are willing to help you and lean in. And so I think one of the main limitations was allowing myself to have people help me. Because realistically, as a leader, like you, you need to trust the people on your team and you need to allow them the space to help you. And that has been, for the first half of my journey at least, like the most difficult, challenging part of scaling my impact and scaling the way that I operate within the company to facilitate like bigger wins on larger scales with bigger teams. And don't get me wrong, like those are not my wins; those are the team's wins. I am there as a facilitator. Um, I'm there to like be a, a mechanic, like with the wrench and like fix when there's a blockage, right? But ultimately, like they're doing the heavy lifting now to to actually solve these problems for our patients. And I you know, I try to do the best job I can of elevating those people. I probably could do better there. I think that's something that uh, is now becoming more important than ever in my role is recognizing awesome wins by people and, and helping to, to elevate them within the company so that people can see what great looks like. And I think as I've moved through abstractions off of the tools, it, the first thing is, can you let go? Can you trust? Can you give away your Legos, as people say? Once you're able to do that, now it's about training other people to give away their Legos. Mm. And then it's about like coaching people on how to train people to give up their Legos. And you're essentially just in this constant like meta cycle, recursive cycle of people giving away Legos. And I've come up with my own analogy because I, I am well known for creating very confusing and abstract analogies. And so I must, but I call it the trapeze. And it's like a key moment in every IC's life or, you know, I guess everyone's life in in their career journey is when you're transitioning from one set of challenges to another. Often it's from individual contributor to manager. For you to be able to take on the next challenge, i.e. like swing and catch the next bar, you need to let go of the one that you're holding on to right now. You're unable to grab both. When you watch a trapeze artist, if they try to hold on both, you just get stuck in the middle, right? And then your arms pull and you get exhausted, you fall to your death. So... It's super important that you're willing to let go in the middle of the swing, probably a bit earlier than it feels natural, because the bar will still be swinging towards you. It won't be quite at where you are, because if you wait for it to be where you are and you let go, it will have swung away by the time you get there. And so there is an element of trust in yourself, in the company, in your leaders who are giving you this chance, but to sort of have a, a leap of faith. And I think a lot of people fall down at that moment, that they're unable to let go of what they have. They want to they want to have both. They won't really give up their Legos. And like ultimately, that will be what holds them back, because... Everyone comes in doing something impactful because that's why they were hired, right? Like, And if they want to scale their impact beyond that, that thing still needs to continually be solved, most likely, right? Problems don't tend to go away for a business. They just get better at solving them. And then that person's responsibility goes from solve the problem to design a solution or a process that can solve that problem repeatedly that someone else could do. Maybe someone with less experience or skill than you, maybe someone with more. Someone else has to be able to do it so that you are freed up to be taken from that swing and swing onto the next one. Um, but people get really good at doing something and then don't want to let go of that because maybe they just want to really feel good about what they do and feel like an expert. And to grow quickly, you need to be spending most of your time, by definition, feeling uncomfortable because you need to be in a place where you need to grow, where you are currently weak. And so if you want to stay in your circle of competence all the time, you're not going to be able to swing. Um, And so you'll be stuck there. And the leadership will be frustrated because they're like, this person's awesome. I want to give them more responsibility, but I need them to do this thing because no one else can do it. Mm. Um, And so it's almost this paradox of like, you need to make yourself obsolete before you're able to progress. And so I couldn't, I had to learn earlier, so I was saying before, like, let go, give it up to other people, trust, because that was the only way I was going to be able to continue to expand the world and work with a broader variety of people. And I think that has been the most rewarding part is getting to living in with different types of people, different crafts. Like I started off in engineering and then I've managed to work across like different creative disciplines, like copywriting and design and like video production into now like product design and product management and all of these different areas.
0: If I wanted to get into growth, what advice would you give me? Well First, I think
1: it's understand the why. With any decision, it's just typically you want to understand the why you're doing something. But then ultimately, and I would give this advice for going into any career, so it's a bit of a cop out, I guess. Be hungry and coachable. I think there is nothing more profoundly impactful than being hungry and being coachable. Like it's a compounding engine that you're building with that. Because to be coachable means you can ask for feedback take feedback, integrate feedback. That's the part that everyone forgets. They focus on the almost theatrical part of saying like, oh, could I please have some feedback? And they get the feedback and then they go away and forget about it. And they think that that act is enough. That's actually costing you because that is uh, hard for the person you're asking to do that. Um, It costs them energy. It costs them like thought cycles, right? We only have finite thought cycles every day. We need to preserve them. And so it's actually quite wasteful to do that. Integrating it is the most important part. And that's what I mean by coachable. Like doing the first two steps is something you can just pretend. You can't pretend to be able to integrate feedback. And that looks like just actioning it, making sure that you're being mindful about changing your behavior and being really intentional about that until it becomes a habit. Um, and it requires the feedback to be good as well. Right? The onus is not completely on you. to make sure that you ask for feedback in the right way from the right people to get the good feedback so that you can action it. But assuming it is actionable, it's on you to action it. Then being hungry is that you're insatiable for that feedback. You're insatiable for being better. You're insatiable for having more impact being insatiable without being coachable is a nightmare for a mm. company, mm. right? And being coachable occasionally, but you don't ever seek it out is like, okay, you'll probably, you know, do fine as an IC, but you're not going to be able to scale fast enough with a startup to stay
0: relevant. What are some of the other nightmares? Like you, you've been at the company for three years and it's obviously added a lot of people. Like what are some of the scaling challenges that you've observed? I think one of the
1: core things that we did that i think a lot of companies do is when you're winning you scale up really fast we added a lot of people and i think like you can go back to the old wild hearts episodes and hear about the like slices in time of, of different stages we were at and that thinking um, and we were just adding a lot of people at that time and i think it's been a challenge when you have i think the, the the crossing point is when you have people who have not yet finished onboarding onboarding new people That is what starts to break down i think with regards to people building sufficient context to be set up to succeed and you're doing disservices now to all the new people that you bring in as well as the people that are now being forced to manage them uh, because they may still be onboarding someone's been at the company for like two months and now you're asking them to to onboard these new people Um, they don't have a lot of the historical context and so what starts to happen is it's almost like heat diffusion you know like culture is like heat and it's like it takes time to spread like people have to start to have their chance to input to it get back from the culture, the feedback loop and understand how they fit in with it, sort of fit in with the team and how the team works. And it's pretty hard for them to be successful in bringing someone else up to speed if they don't fully know how to do their whole job yet. Mm. And yeah, so I think the scaling challenges of that, when you go, you blast through the period where you would be documenting and building out processes for scale and blasting through that period. So you're fully reliant still on tribal knowledge and people teaching people and you've created a broken link because you've put someone in who hasn't yet understood the context in the tribal knowledge and they're trying to pass it on. And so you have this like fracturing or like sub clicking starts to happen, like clicks and the culture starts to fracture. And it's not to say culture shouldn't change. It absolutely should change. Every new person that comes in adds to that culture. But what it can't do is diverge into many different contradicting cultures that don't like each other or disagree with each other. Because you need to have like alignment generally about mission, what it is you're here to do as a company, because um, otherwise it will slowly start to s- slow down the execution of producing things of value for customers, for patients. And that is the thing that is untenable as a business, right? Like they have to come first,
0: patient mm. first, always. Mm. I want to draw this back to the very first question How have you improved your capital allocation decisions over time? Knowing how to read a
1: PL has been a really good one. Having a what? Sorry. <laughs> knowing how to read a profit and loss statement yeah. has been really good like catching yeah. a pnl you know when you first come in you get this like document and you're like what the hell is going on in this doc There's <laughs> right? like 50 line items there's all this jargon it can be really really confusing and i try to be mindful of that now when i introduce new people to it and i sort of take the time to try and walk them through different parts of it i think i had a benefit of being quite comfortable with mathematics generally coming from an engineering background like that's commonplace i like studied a lot of it at intellectual engineering and so there is a level of visual thinking or intuition that comes from the mathematics related to a pnl like addition subtraction multiplication division like those things being quite intuitive i think being really competent at understanding how changing something in the business will flow through that pnl is the most important part because well capital allocation is a mathematical function at the end of the day when you look at the different levers across the business and then the different elements of the pnl each of those can be thought of as a mathematical function of like money in, money out, and some multiplication, some addition, some subtraction. Something happens to it inside that function. Typically, it's some kind of upside function minus some kind of downside function. So your LTV of a cohort might be like the average number of purchases per month times the average number of people left in that month minus the like churn, you know? or you know, like the total out at the beginning minus the churn. And so there's a mathematical function there. And so if you can intuitively understand what happens when you pull each of those levers, what the output is, like if the LTB is the output, like what is it proportional to and what is it inversely proportional to? That helps you understand how you should prioritize work to attack each of those levers. Um, if you're unable to break it down, you probably won't be able to subdivide and conquer. And so like converting things into the mathematical functions is a nice way to simplify it down. And then you can break it down into these different modes of attack, I guess. It's like, okay, well, let's increase average purchases per month right that that's like a lever that we can pull there or we can increase the average value of each purchase or we can try to decrease churn or we you know there's different levers there and they all become very obvious when you break it out into a mathematical function
0: and so you visualize it in the real life like it's the relationship between math and the genuine user experience and how do you drive value from that user experience
1: yeah i mean like something that's really like a tension I've had to navigate would be down a funnel, right? Funnels are constituted of five or six steps more, sometimes, sometimes less, but rarely. And those steps, when you get a percentage conversion rate of each step, right, it's branching probability. So it's like you multiply down it to get the whole conversion rate. Mm. And so that's the relationship between moving up and down through zooming in and out is like multiplication and division. And then when you want to think about changes to parts of the funnel, well, that is a commutative action, which is a mathematical rule. And it means it doesn't matter which order you do it, and it will have the same net impact. So like 10% at the bottom versus 10% at the top from a mathematical purity point of view is equivalent. But what happens in reality is not that Hmm. often. Because as I said at the beginning, it's like the relationship between the steps of the funnel are not closed systems. They interact with each other. Like how you prime someone mentally when they move into the next step of the experience will affect that stage as well. Mm. Um, And so they all interact with each other. And so that's one of the things why it's so important to zoom out and look at it at that broad impact. Like you can multiply out to get there. But yeah, it won't be necessarily equivalent. And then if you work at the top and down the funnel, then you can compound those like 10% changes by you know, bringing 10% more people to the next step and then 10% more of like that compounded. So that's actually like 11%, you know, it's 110%, 10% of that is 11%. And then you get like, yeah, you know, compounding from there, 12.1%, et cetera. Mm. And as you do those changes, it will compound down the funnel. If you start at the very end, you could try working backwards, but because the stages interact with each other, you probably want to craft something that's really coherent and have like a clarity of vision um, and have gotten to the details to really know what you're building towards so that you can benefit from that compounding.
0: That is a really helpful mental model for thinking about growth.
1: It's all math all the way down in the end of the day. Maths <laughs> and physics, they find the universe. Can't mm. escape it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. A lot of people I've seen in the US that make their way into growth uh, actually have physics background. I know one of the like, lead growth minds at Facebook was a physics major. And I mean, you did electrical engineering. A lot of physics. Yeah. So it's it's useful to sort of like
1: visualize what that looks like. Like, as you master something, it becomes intuitive. It becomes low effort. Yeah. So I think if you are a master of the fundamentals of mathematics, like, it makes these other things, like, you can focus at a much higher conceptual level because the underlying things will take care of themselves. Yeah. It's quite intuitive and obvious, and you feel quite comfortable navigating it and pulling the different levers. It's like you're playing as a game.
0: Yeah. What's unique about UKE's growth
1: engine? Uh, I, I know exactly what it is. I've thought about it a lot because it's also a big point of tension within the business because it is counterintuitive or it is non-standard in the industry we have combined our performance and our creative side of advertising into one team now most businesses if they don't have it in-house most won't have it in-house you know especially for the beginning you know 100 200 people of a business they would be using agencies so you would have a creative agency and you might have a media buying agency sometimes you have a combined one but typically they would be separate and so in those scenarios the creative agency is going to sub-optimize as we kind of talked about before they'll zoom in and create the best looking Um, advertising they possibly could with the brief. They'll do their very best work on that. And then the media buyer will be given that and they'll be like, okay, well, I guess this is now what I have to optimize for. I must now find the local maximum for this asset. But what we've done is by combining them, we've integrated the feedback loop and we also push them to graduate slowly into things. We, we, We iterate with conviction, right? So it's like, we don't jump straight to, all right, million dollar TV buy. We start with, let's run a Facebook ad. Let's run 20 Facebook ads of different variants of this angle and see what happens. If that works, we'll, we'll create a motion asset, put that on Facebook, and then we'll cut it up with some of our existing video shot assets into a YouTube campaign, and the growth leads manage this whole process all the way through to a TV shoot, um, and then we run it on, on TV. And that will be then integrated through the line with, with every other part of the, the campaign. By integrating those teams, the feedback loop is stronger. And as we talked about before, like it's the hungry and coachable thing. That's the sort of institutionalized side of that in a team and the process of that team is like, the team is hungry because you're being transparent with the PNL, you're playing this game with them to make it as efficient and as investable as possible to get more budget, more scale. Then you're also making sure the team is coachable because they're integrating the feedback loops and having the team as close as possible. And they don't have to ask permission from anyone else outside of the team. They can run, 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 be hungry, they can be coachable and they can grow. And I think that has been a key unlock for our success. And when you you now multiply that out, across all of our different brands, which creates so many places for us to put capital. We managed to continue to grow faster and faster and faster quarter on quarter without CACs coming down, which just you just don't see.
0: And you would say the key driver of that has been, I guess the redesign in the organization structure and the speed at which feedback is arriving to the team.
1: I think we made tweaks with that restructure. I'd say that core DNA goes all the way back to the founders. Yeah. That was, that was their insight. That was what they, they brought to the, um, the team structure from the very beginning was going to be integrated together. We, we just sort of tweaked it and, and iterated on it when it came time to do this restructure, to make sure that they were fully accountable and they had full agency.
0: How would you advise or think about advising a founder on, on building a growth function? Is this unique to eucalyptus or do you think that every business should have a growth function? I think every business should have a growth function.
1: I think there comes a time in, in the life of every function and every organization that you need to evaluate, like unbundling a team, but that's a whole nother conversation. Whereas like if a team has hit a certain level of maturity, maybe you actually just want that to be, okay, every team has like a growth manager or uh, made up that title, but like they have someone in the team that is responsible for the tweaking and optimization and analytics, like all of those things integrated into one person. That might be a way you go, or you would have the other solution, which is to bring everyone into one place and have them operate there but that means they won't have full agency over the things they need to change if you want it to spread throughout the whole company. All right? So it's like if you want them to work with your you know, product team, you want them to work with your ops team, You want because all the different levers across the business are going to need collaboration if they're going to be the full shadow of the business. And they then need to also be careful not to strip the ownership from those partner teams over their own metrics because they can't just be like, well, growth will take care of it. That's unproductive for them and unproductive for growth. It needs to be a shared ownership model and so one of the fastest ways to short circuit that is to put people in those teams with those people so that they're a partnership and then you need to make sure that you're bringing them back together to share the learnings of what is working what is not so you get the leverage across the company that you would have from an individual team so i would say it is the way we have done it is unique to us the principles of it apply every company will be different based on the way that it grows if you're a predominantly a product-led growth company because you're building a south product and it mostly drives like viral growth inside of companies Um, and you have a direct sales function to acquire new companies, then probably building like my story on the integrated advertising engine, probably not the go, probably not the go right away, uh, maybe down the line. But you need to think first about if we go all the way back to what a business is, it's like, where do you put money in? Where are you trying to optimize where you put that money in? And how do you get the money out? That should be where you start from when designing your, your growth function and starting
0: layer by layer on each of those levers. You touched on a bunch of rules and analogies. What's a, what's another rule or analogy that you're constantly leaning on? One that I think is often forgotten
1: is the value of time. And you can't prioritize without considering time. That is something that very often does fall through the cracks people forget about. And what I mean by that is every month that you operate, you have burn if you're a venture funded startup. And so the cost of waiting for a month is has a real tangible cost. And you need to think about that as well with experimentation, because experimentation has a cost because of that. And often there will be a clash of incentives where the individual wants to de-risk their decision-making and have something very attributable to point at and go, that was my impact. Mm. But at the same time, it will then add one or two months of waiting to getting the final impact out to all of your customers or patients. And the the delay there has a real tangible cost, which may be hundreds of thousands, or in many cases, if you're a, a scale up, millions of dollars, if, it, if it's a really meaningful initiative, because costs expensive, especially when you add on on costs. So, Time is often forgotten, and there have been many times where we go back to the principles on like what makes a great leader. Part of my role has been to zoom people out to understand that when they're cost trading things off, they won't include headcount time. And so if something is going to take three months, maybe there is a smaller thing we can do first that gets 20, 30% of the impact, but only costs 5% of the headcount time, mm. as well as the fact that you accrue value month to month. And so if something is out in market and gaining value from customers or patients, That is something now where if you get it out in the front of the quarter, it has a meaningful difference to the end of the quarter when you're talking about a 12-month timeline to no money. So three months out of 12 is a really, really big difference, especially if you're in a compounding business like a subscription business. And so front-loading, prioritizing time, like bringing that into the consideration, sometimes it means doing things that wouldn't otherwise stack up. It's like, oh, we're going to do this content cluster for SEO. This is a real conversation we had like a long time ago. It was like, we're going to do this content cluster, but it's Like, we're not high conviction on it. We don't think it's going to be the best one, but we would rather go back and do the research and start again. And I really respected the attempt to find the best solution. The thing that I stretched them on a little bit was who does the research and who executes the cluster, because those are different people. And so there's no reason to not execute on the cluster now while you continue to go back. So it's not an or thing, it's an and thing. Hmm. And we should execute on it. Even like, is there a chance that this has a negative effect? The answer was no. Is there a chance it has no effect? The answer was actually probably yes. Is there an answer that it has an upside effect? There is a percentage chance of yes. So in my mind, if the cost is low, cost is lower than waiting two weeks for the headcount cost of doing the research again, absolutely do it now. Mm. Because there is a percentage chance. So if you find the expected value, it's positive. And yeah, there is a downside cost of waiting that you can really truly trade off against that
0: expected value. Given the complexity of allocating dollars two different brands and this idea of the value of time how frequently are you sourcing information to make decisions on allocating capital and how does it work at you I mean, as i said before i'm surrounded by really excellent
1: people um, and that really helps so it actually decreases the cadence through which i need to get information yeah my growth leads really strong and have um, continued to go strength to strength been very proud like we've only been in their roles now coming up on one year for the most part and like they're like fish in water. You know, we had teething problems getting stood up, but the, the way in which they've taken ownership and increasing ownership over their PLs as a brand um, and going broader with their collaboration models, with ops, with other parts of the business, that's all been really helpful for making it so that the touch points between myself and them do not need to be more frequent than um, a fallback period of a, of a fortnight. We have weekly one-on-ones, but that's actually to talk about their career, not about the performance of their brand. And then every two weeks we have a brand performance meeting where it's essentially like two hours I go through each of the brand's performance on an advertising point of view. And uh, once a month when we do our reporting for a P&L point of view, we will review that as a leadership together to help them all have context. Yeah, like on, on how the business is going, where we're weak, where we're strong um, and take actions from that. And so, yeah, I think Alex has been a godsend. He built up our acquisition team and has stepped into a role of of driving a lot of the capital allocation modeling out in great detail how different scenarios can play out for us and has yeah, made a huge difference by giving full ownership to him to to run 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 with that i get much higher quality decisions and information to help us inform our decisions versus before where it was kind of spread around a lot and across the company you know you get to a stage where forecasting and marketing is incredibly important because your side is trying to manage supply chain And if we're not or we're trying to manage our doctor capacity or we're trying to you know these types of things where it has downstream impacts on the patient experience and we could be like doing really well in marketing because we've outperformed our expectations we've actually torpedoed the patient experience which is a really net negative thing to have done as the company grows as your role expands like that's what we're saying right at the very beginning it's like it's all about the net impact of that whole experience and what the consideration what the boundaries are of that net calculation of the start and end of your responsibility starts to grow to the point where it's like, okay, well, if anything bad goes down anywhere in the in the funnel, that's actually on me. And so then I need to work to collaborate with this, the specific owners of each of those parts of the the funnel to help them, you know, drive solutions or to build the systems that will drive solutions.
0: Yeah. Without without me. You mentioned you've been seeing your growth leads going from strength to strength. What does that look like? The place I would start with that is that every
1: person is is super different and that's the think a key recognition as a leader will be that you won't have one size fits all process that's going to turn reliably someone into a great leader and I think manager and leadership are two different set of skills and sometimes people are one and not the other and you need to to isolate part of that at the beginning so you coach them in the right way with the growth leads each of them has had their own set of challenges like so one the brand is different all of them are in different stages of their maturity they have different demographics of patients, the financial like profiles, the margins, all of those things are different across all the brands. And so they each have a very different set of challenges. And so one of the things that lets me say that they've got strength to strength is that they haven't always been winning. But what I've had faith in is that when you give them the feedback, when they come in, they take ownership of that. When they've, when they've you know stumbled, they'll take ownership of that and you'll give them the direct feedback and they will go and they'll try their very best to integrate it with the team. And that's really what you can ask because as I said, it creates the compounding machine and that's what drives the trajectory. And so they might not have been absolute like um, legendary like marketing directors or growth leads before, but as they've grown into these roles over the past four quarters, they have really become quite impressive. Um, and I'm very proud of them. So if I were to quote some examples, I was like, well, when we first started working together, Carly's taken on the software and KIN responsibilities, and we've recently split out those brands into two different teams. Software has had its own fair share of knocks. We've had to make a lot of very difficult decisions over the course of scaling that brand. As I said at the beginning, it was a very personalized experience and that is costly to operate. Um, we've had to make like costs, especially with rising costs across the world, we've had to make some cost saving or, or increasing prices decisions and it hasn't always been popular with our patients. Um, and it never is a great thing to have to raise prices on people and it, you usually have to build quite a lot of conviction and I'm very very happy with her ability to do that. But she's also really leveled up um, with her ability to think strategically, to build out a plan longer than sort of what campaigns we're going to run over the next few sprints to what is a three or six month plan for improving uh, the patient experience through multiple levers that results in decreased CAC, increased LTV, and generally a much more healthy and investable business that allows us to scale it up because we use a a lever of like the post-marketing contribution margin, which in many businesses, just contribution margin, we split it out because marketing is such a big driver. But what's contribution that, actually, margin just <laughs> yeah sorry uh you make your revenue you deduct what it costs you to buy those products that gets you your gross margin and then the cost of marketing and operations and all of these things come out of and the cost of servicing that gets you to your contribution margin that is the money that would go to pay for your fixed costs so your rent and your headcount and that would be your profitability so that's kind of the layers of the, the PL there but it can become confusing going in and out of eucalyptus PLs because we, we do split it out a bit, a little bit differently in that marketing is such a big part of it that we want to be very transparent and clear with the amount that we spend on that as a growth lever. Um, and so we have our contribution margin and then we have post-marketing contribution margin because what we want to understand is like what is the efficiency of our marketing engine? So we need to have a line item before and after to understand the impact of the money we choose to spend on marketing. I think one of the things that's made us really successful and it you know, works really well with investors and other groups is that we have great financial controls for a company of our scale, I would say. The level of rigor, detail, like general like financial understanding of how to how businesses operate and what the different line items mean and how different teams can operate on that. We broaden out that knowledge so much within the company where different team leads and things aren't responsible for their own PLs. Um I just don't think you see that in many companies. And that financial control is necessary because we predominantly we sell a lot of physical product. And that doesn't have the same software margins that you would get in a SaaS company, and so we need to be a lot more mature and 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 careful about that because you're not getting like 20x on every headcount um, because of compounding SaaS
0: revenue, and
1: so we need to be very judicious. And yeah, I think like that has has helped a lot
0: in this new market where efficiency is is as valued as growth versus the alternative where you just grow at all costs. How has your perspective of growth evolved to account for that moving goalpost? We have this
1: concept within the company of acceptable CAC. It's a novel term, but it's not necessarily like a novel concept. I just want, we just wanted to try to simplify things a little bit. It is the, like we operate off of a certain payback that we want to tolerate. And we just do the pre-calculation work to understand what that would be. Like what margin we would have gotten at that time from that cohort. And that is how much we're willing to pay to acquire them. So that maintains our paybacks. Like we just, we can, as long as the CAC is below the ACAC, Growth Lead can rest easy knowing that's tolerable. They don't need to come in and a request if they can spend more or spend less. They can spend up into the budget and or the ACAC, um, depending on which one comes first. And if yeah. you're below ACAC and you fit your budget, you better believe we're probably going to green light more spend. Mm. Right? Because there'll be somewhere else in the business where we'll be over ACAC and, and, and over budget. And we'll be like, all right, we've got to cut back here. And we'll re-divert that money. And that's what I mean by we're able to scale with CAC coming down because it's a blended CAC across the portfolio. And so we can reprioritize between the brands. And so that is a really key measure we've had for a very long time. That was like one of the first things I think as I branched out from from engineering into landing pages, SEO, and then helping with some of the paid marketing stuff, like that was one of the key insights we first came to. Companies often fail, right? They, they fail because of spiraling acquisition costs that, that crush their, their margins because they're selling commodity at a branded price. And that differential margin is is ideally where they're getting lower CACs, but people come in and compete the CACs up and then they can't afford to operate and they're losing money on every purchase like your Casper or something like that. Mm. So the portfolio, the house of brands model helps um, allocate capital around, but we also realized that you needed to increase the LTV of every customer. That's often the port of call. Tim had seen that at Koala with the expansion into the couches and the other furniture and how impactful that had been. So we've been doing that for a very long time. Um, And that actually gave us like between those two facets, like the business model shift to a house of brands where you can accrue more margin, have paid back cohorts in brand one that can uh, subsidize the operation of brand two means that I'm sorry, but if you're competing with us in brand two, you're in trouble mm. because how are you going to afford to compete against us where we're, our, our A/CAC is 50% higher than yours? And that's just a business model advantage. It's structural. like You can't really replicate it. And so that gives us this almost like a bespoke scale power based on the house of brands model where we have the differentiated margin profile of having the paid back cohorts that allows us to divert that to pay more in new brands when we start them up than existing competitors in that space. And so... That is one way we can outcompete, compete, but because we've had those strict controls and we've never very, I wouldn't say never, I try to avoid speaking in absolutes, but, um, we very rarely violate that principle unless there is something really time sensitive about the opportunity, like a new treatment type is coming to market or something like that. And we need to capture early rather than later. The team has always been very cautious. I think the thing that has changed most in this market, which honestly, like, if you subtract out all the terrible things that are happening because of the market and the companies that are shutting down, the livelihoods that are lost, the pressures on the VC-funded companies to have effective unit economics that could reach profitability one day, that is a net good thing for society, right? It's like these companies that having to be rebuild a more fortress balance sheet and a more like robust business model is going to be a build like a stronger foundation for the Sydney startup ecosystem and the world ecosystem generally. But yeah, it's going to be a very painful transition there. I think it's come at a decent time in the eucalyptus life cycle we could have been caught in it at a bad time otherwise but it has forced us to make decisions that we otherwise might not have had conviction to do and that is the biggest unlock that i think we've had in the last sort of six or twelve months is the conviction to be able to cut facebook marketing spend in pilot even though it was like the biggest driver and turns out it was a lot of fat in there and it ended up saving us a lot of money and gain a crazy amount of efficiency we didn't have before to the point where our marketing spend is a fraction of what it was before, but it's driving the same volumes now. And so it brought like a level of um, operational maturity. This is where the financial controls came in handy. We're able to see this start to play out and go, wow, okay, like we've been really, really um, adaptable to this market. We turned on a dime. We made the cost structure changes that we needed to. We pulled down our burn massively and we've managed to maintain that burn while massively growing our contribution margin by maintaining those controls. So it's pushed us to make hard decisions I think that broadly across the ecosystem, it's going to do the same on other companies. And if we had been a year or two earlier, we might not have been as mature and as ready to to weather this storm. But honestly, I've actually never been more excited about the p- potential of this business. We've gone now into a new era. We just launched a mobile app for Juniper. You know, we've gone global. We're launching n- multiple new markets. Those are going strength to strength as well. Um, we were able to replicate a lot of the successes that we've seen in Australia over there, um, which is starting to build conviction that we can continue that. There's so many exciting things going on, and the recent changes to bring the offerings team together, uh, which is the other half of my job, has... The offerings team? So at Eucalyptus, we sell physical product. We have an element of software experience, and we also have services. So the combination of all of those things is an offering. Mm. We just realized that any one of those things would probably be disservice to our patients if we try to sub-segment them into different places. And Sally was really instrumental. Um, She was chief of staff for Tim and bringing together this team structure and working with everyone to figure out what was going to be the optimum cross-functional team to help solve these problems moving forward Um, and got all the leadership involved and and we ended up doing this move together and we've stepped into this offerings world and it's really helped bring I think clarity of conviction and it's super important in this market to have velocity right like you, you can't afford as I said time is the most expensive thing and if you're not moving, you're not gaining value each accruing month. That you're like spending money to exist. You're moving further away from survival, not closer. And and that is the mentality that I think we've had. We're very we're still scrappy, even though you know we're killing it. I think it's it's been really good to see the team rally around those challenges and and really start to step up to the expectations and the growth leads going deeper down the funnel to focus more on some of these LTV initiatives like the lifetime value initiatives, like cross-selling new things or helping patients with retention and those elements that historically, they've been more focused on acquisition. So everyone has been stepping up. And I think like that in part is due to the mission that we're on and how exciting and aligned we are around bringing high touch, high quality care to the world at affordable prices and way less wait times. than if you go to see physical GP, like that, that's it. And
0: I think we all care deeply about doing that what are you excited about learning over the next six months in your role something that has been so
1: awesome over the past six months and past 12 months that is only going to compound now in the next few quarters because it's starting to really pop off is this international stuff Mm. like the creation of the new teams the launch in the new markets like we've had some really great work from engineering to support you know our platform across multiple markets like we're trying to drive a lot of operating leverage off of our shared infrastructure and so you know i got to give like a shout out to ryan he did a really great job like unifying and driving with the team obviously ryan and his team um unifying the uh, platform across for different markets supporting different languages and that's like the second major unification he had to do where he unified all of our domestic brands as well with with the team um and so you know that that team's work there has been hugely impactful for us to continue to scale at a cost that we can pallet. then what's most exciting for me i think is we're building this creative engine that is going to make us unstoppable globally, where um, because of the fact we do everything in-house, we have all of this insight, we have this velocity, we have the studio, um, we're able to outcompete anyone in creative velocity. That makes us, when you combine that with our really good media buying, then we're unstoppable powerhouse. But now what I'm really excited to build, and again, I got a shout out to Elliot, he did a really awesome job in um, standing up our video production pipeline from a technical point of view such that we have editors in other countries that can download low file size proxies of our content we've shot. They can edit it and then they can upload that edit and someone else in another country can relink that to the high quality masters and deploy it to like an ad. um, Mm. spot. And so now we're starting to create this network where the more markets you have, the more creative teams you have, the more leads you have, like growth leads actually you have this compounding pool of shared resource of content that they've made where you can now pull from what's working, deploy it in your own market with translation or with dubbing or with reshooting some parts of it. But then you're contributing back into that shared pool with your own insights and own work. And so that global network will actually make us like Bring a third dimension to what i was talking about before where we've got these brands that like cross-subsidize each other now we have markets that cross-subsidize each other from a like creative production point of view from a product build and deployment point of view from a service design and delivery point of view there's leverage opportunities across all of these things and i don't know if it's coming out of my voice but i get very excited about leverage Um, i get teased about it constantly i don't know where it is but someone in my team made me a bracelet katie where it says leverage on it Um, it's usually on my desk so i look at it every day uh, reminds me where i came from and what's uh what's the most important thing at the end of the day it's all about leverage go a step further why is it so important why is leverage so important yeah i feel like it's one of the fundamental laws of the universe you know in a way where it's just like leverage if you break it down in a really physical obvious thing is about torque, and it's about like force times displacement right it's like if you have a lever and you put it on a rock you can lift a rock that's way bigger than if you went to go pick it up with your arms Right. and even in your body, there's leverage in like your hip joints, in your back, and all of these things. Right, like that, those are all levers as well, and they have fulcrums where you turn around. like you turn about the fulcrum, and you create much more displacement than you could have otherwise. But the thing about leverage is, it's it has no ceiling. You can continue to build leverage on top of leverage, and it's like it goes from addition, right, and multiplication is just collapsed addition. Then it goes to exponents, which is collapsed multiplication. What I mean by that is, if you you solve a problem on your own. Then you build a team, you add extra people into that team, and now they can solve the problem without you. That's like 2x of you, right? Now, so you've gone from you plus you is now two. You know, if you then replicate that and you have two of those things, well, now you've essentially got like four of those things. And you can continue to like binary fission or like double up uh, that impact as you build out like an org. And then now you have two orgs. And as you continue to improve the eternal efficiencies and you share those learnings across, that's also leverage. Um, and you're constantly moving things through like, linear, into multiplicative, into exponential. And that's like the journey of building out each of these systems. And I think one thing that I've seen people make the mistake of a lot, the most concrete version I see of this is someone comes in as an IC, maybe it's a lack of um, progression plan, maybe it's a lack of clarity, but one of the first things that they either they will be told or they will offer up is they want to become strategic. And that is like, that's the aspiration as an end rather than a means. And I think that is a trap because like to derive a strategy and it's different to a plan, right? When people say, I want to be strategic, often what they mean is I want to do planning, want to make decisions, but that's different. A strategy is a specific thing and it is a set of rules that by which you pass all decisions through to derive the plan. So it's usually a set of things of like what we do, what we don't do. So that when you go, okay, I want to create a plan, you, you measure each of these things up against the strategy and you're able to know that it's going to be aligned to the greater company. Um, that's a, it's a very specific thing. It's got a set of skills you need to do to derive that thing. Um, it is different to planning. It is different to being a leader. It is different to like scaling out your impact to broader than yourself. All of those things are different to being strategic. And so what I think people really should be aiming for instead is they've come in, they've demonstrated outsized impact on their own expect- people with expectations on their role. They've then, as we said before, packaged that up into a process that someone else can do then then demonstrate that they're able to move up into more of prioritization of making those decisions which is not being strategic it's like the the middle gap is the important one which is where you go from i'm doing the thing to i'm building the system that does the thing and you can do those things at the same time you don't need to be promoted you don't need to like change role to do that ideally you're you're iterating on your process all the time and it's getting to a place where it's so good that you can hand that off to someone else and then you're free to do that trapeze swing Mm. Um, and you're able to now move on to that next challenge, which that next challenge will probably be coordinating that process plus some new processes, some new challenges. Often, when I say to someone, "Okay, cool, it's time to hire," the first thing they do is they don't think about the next challenge they're going to move on to derive the process for, because that's the leader's role is to derive processes that derive that bring clarity. Um, they first focus on like hiring someone to replace themselves, and then it's like, "Cool, well, once that happens, what are you what are you going to do?" And they go, oh, "I don't know. Um, I'm going to manage them. What do you mean? I'm going to manage them." It's like well, actually, <laughs> like that shouldn't—that's not a job, right? Like, you don't want to hire one person. I call it a giraffe structure, where it's just like you got a person on top of a person, it's just like a really long neck, <laughs> right? <laughs> it's it's much more important that they have like a second chat set of challenges to move on to, and they're able to so they bring the person up to speed on their process, and they know what they're going to be building out. So it's like I handed over the reins of the growth engineering team to Ryan, who I referred to before, um, and I focused on building out our landing pages SEO teams and process with those people there that were the main experts. I definitely wasn't going into it and I just like you know learned from them and was the handyman with the wrench but ultimately like they were doing the heavy lifting we built up that team and it has been very successful but I think like I needed to be able to build up the process of growth engineering to be able to hand it up over to Ryan so that I could focus on the next thing and then we've done that so on and so forth over and over again to leverage all the way up to this really beautiful thing. And never was it like this intentional plan when I first started that three years I would have done all these things. It was, what is the next set of problems that need to be tweaked and solved and continuing to just kind of go from one to the next bigger one to the next bigger one and just testing my boundaries of like what I can do.
0: Hmm, That's beautiful. I love that so much. How do you think about scaling an organization when it comes to hiring and firing? With scale, there's going to be three
1: outcomes. There is Firing and firing, as you said, and there's promotions, right? internal mobility, lateral moves as well, but we'll just include those as kind of assumed. And I think either the the, the organization manages to scale or it doesn't. And what do I, what I mean by scale? It's like, well, it can continue to have the efficiency, that mathematical function before of dollars in, dollars out. It continues to have that at a larger number of dollars. There's incrementality there. If you put in more dollars and you get like a sublinear function out the back and you get less per dollar than before, then it is not scaling as well and sometimes it goes negative and that's very bad so ideally you want to keep that ratio to at least one such that as it scales you gain efficiencies and it gets more efficient so there's many other that's a whole other set of questions but when it comes to the people involved because that's the most important part right companies just just an organized group of people organized around a, a mission that ultimately is measured on the dollars in dollars out as we said at the beginning and so the people side is fundamental super super important they are the only way that any company exists So making sure that people are aligned to the right set of challenges is very, very important because different people will thrive in different set of problems. They are motivated by different things. They're demotivated by different things. And the demotivation is actually probably more important than the motivation. But what we have seen time and time again, which I think will be helpful for people operating their own businesses is, I can't remember who it was that said it, but one of the fastest ways to change someone is to change their environment or their position. And it's rather than coaching someone up long time until they're you know super, super ready. There have been times where we've had to thrust someone into a role of responsibility and they have grown into it really fast. The leading indicator of them being able to do that is the hungry and coachable thing I talked about before, because that is the feedback loop That's how fast they evolve. And so they need to evolve incredibly quickly. So you need the hungriest, most coachable people if you're going to thrust them into these positions. But what we have seen time and time again is, Maybe it's just because of the nature of how complicated Eucalyptus is. as a house of brands and all of these different complexities, the the level of detail and our financial controls, et cetera, maybe makes it really hard to come in. But when we've hired leaders in, they've had a a challenging time. Um, I think we've become a lot more successful at that in recent quarters. I think when we tried maybe last year or the year before, we had much more success in internal promotions. And I think we've always continued to have that as a core tenant where we bring in high performers and we create space for them to fulfill their potential. And saying true to that has aligned very well with the success of the business because the context that you build being on the tools, the context that you build working in a team, often like as the company scales, your leader gets dragged off and doing something else and you step up naturally and you're already doing it. If the team can operate with poor leadership for two months, then you shouldn't be hiring someone, you should be promoting someone. Mm. And that will happen very frequently in startups because like maybe the manager is the CEO and they like got 20 things they got to do today and get doing your performance review is not one of them. Yeah. Um, and you kind of just like you step up and you just take over and you're like starting to derive your own prioritization and you're running ahead and you're just saying hey FYI I'm solving this problem I faced in this way and they're just like awesome right I don't think a message makes a CEO happier than that Yeah, and maybe Tim will tell you something different but I, I honestly think that, that that would be the most exciting thing I mean because I just multiply it out by how it makes me feel If someone goes, hey I faced this problem I actually don't need anything from you right now I'm just letting you know this is what I'm going to do let me know if you like really disagree like ninety percent of the time, I'm like, Nah, you go ahead. Yeah, like that that's awesome. So I think when I just think about scaling up, it creates gaps and spaces and voids in the company which need to be filled. People will naturally be pulled into them, and you shouldn't resist it. Is essentially what I'm saying. You can obviously performance manage after the fact. If someone is not growing, they're not hungry, they're not coachable, then they shouldn't be pulled into that void. That's like the main thing. Is like positioning the right person in that team, such that when the time comes, they can be the one that that steps up. And the better you get at this, the more you can see ahead six months, nine months, 12 months in the future of when these voids are going to form, when things are going to break. And I I realistically think most people can do two things for about three months. Then you need to work on iterating the structure underneath them so that it is more sustainable. Three to six months is like, and it's just from my own personal experience where like I start to break. Um, And then you need to be building more structure underneath so that they can um, delegate more of the time to the team and trust people underneath them.
0: And just to clarify, when you say two to three things, like what are the two to three things right now for you? So there's been many examples, That right now it is, I
1: would say the domestic growth team and the capital allocation across those brands and a lot of that's taken care of now. Then there's the offerings world, which my responsibility is predominantly thinking a bit further ahead. So something we've lacked historically, I think has been some really defined clarity of six to 18 months from now of like, what are, what are we building towards so that people within the team can make better decisions um, and not have to form like company level stances without the context they need. And then the, the international growth stuff is really hot, like heating up and, and needs a lot more TLC. i are going to be heading over there very soon uh, and working with the team over there, um, which is really exciting because honestly, like those teams are legends and we hold them up often as like an archetype of how we should all spy to be. But there's very few of them and they work very hard, but they do really amazing work that helps, you know, thousands and thousands of patients and financially are like, you know, winning. Obviously we're on the precipice of a very big opportunity globally,
0: and they are the frontier. Man, so good. Thank you so much for your time, man. Uh, <laughs> I've loved having you on and I can't wait to see how, how well you go over the next six months and be there to watch the journey. So thanks again for your time. Absolutely, what a
1: pleasure. I'm very always very happy to be a test subject and a lab rat and to be the first uh, operator
0: on your operator series is a great honor, so thank you. Pleasure. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode. If you left with more energy than when you started, we'd be super grateful if you liked or subscribed, left a review, even shared it with a friend. In case you want to keep in touch, share feedback or even a pitch deck, I'll leave my bling card in the show notes for you to get in touch. Thank you so much for listening once again and we'll see you in a couple of weeks. Godspeed.